evening, everyone. Welcome back to the living world. It is now the middle of March, as you all know, and I am back now for episode 29. Woo! Next one will be number 30, which is nuts. And um, for those of you who didn't know, too, as a little bit of an aside about random public events <laughs> that are going on, um, I was just walking over here from, um, from doing work uh, at my flat, and you know, you know what I saw? I saw a bunch of trucks, and uh, and I'm sure you guys all know already, but they're filming some stuff for The Crown in town right now, which honestly for me is pretty cool. Like I've never really been that uh, adjacent to like shooting of TV shows and movies and stuff. It is pretty cool. So that's just a little random aside of something I just wanted to mention that's going on around town. If you want to recall anything from my episode tonight, number one, the crown is filming at least for this week and number two i'll be talking about um uh fruit fly fruit fly brains tonight so yes <laughs> yeah and also a uh, side note they will be closing tesco i think it's like tomorrow morning i don't know i saw another sign yesterday because i go buy my food at tesco half the time because it's close they'll be closing it tomorrow so yeah just keep that in mind uh everyone who is um in town often that a lot of stuff is going on because of that tv show but hey it's pretty cool right i mean i love to be i would love to be on tv that would be great um but alas i am here and i am on the radio so that's pretty close i guess i guess but yeah anyways uh back to business um hope you all enjoyed my little uh, two minute aside about tv shows though i'll probably go into other tangents later on uh, the research I'll be talking about uh, this evening for this week's uh, episode is uh, from the University of Cambridge, actually. I thought, hey, why not, why not um, do a more local, I guess, local, quote-unquote, uh, university this week? Eventually, I'd probably like to talk about a bit more about research going on here in St. Andrews, but I haven't gotten any inquiries yet from people who want to come on the show, so I'm still waiting around. So again, if anyone's interested, email me. Uh, you can hit me up on my show's Facebook page, or you can email Star and ask for me specifically if you'd like to get in touch. So yes, again. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, you guys get to hear a bit about the research from Cambridge, uh, which is about uh, fruit fly brains. Yes, yes. Very cool, very cool. I know, I know. And I'm actually changing, I'm trying it out this week. I'm changing the structure of my shows a little bit because I was, when I was emailing about getting uh, greater public outreach, um, some of the people I reached out to were like, Julia, you should try uh, talking about a fewer articles instead and going into more depth into each of them. So I was like, okay, great. Thanks for the suggestion because my show's an hour, as you guys all know, five to six Woo. Uh, so I'm changing the structure of my show a little bit this week where I will only be focusing on one article. Yes, I know. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, because I haven't done this before, if I end up only talking for like 40 minutes, I apologize. And I can talk about other things if need be. Hopefully it doesn't come to that. But just so you guys know, I'm changing my show uh, setup a bit to talk only about one or two articles instead of three, just so I can go into a bit more depth. Because before I've kind of just skimmed and not really covered sometimes the essence of what the studies that I've talked about are about. So I'm trying that. We'll see how it goes. Yes. So 
Yes, I will be talking about uh, research with fruit flies. This study specifically is actually really big. I was like, oh, I wanted I wanted to do some of the research at Cambridge because they're a really big uni and a lot of people know them. And I've never actually visited, but I'd like to visit. It'd be cool. They have like boats and old buildings and stuff. And, you know, I know I know people that live close to there. So, you know, it's a fun time. But yeah. So I found this study actually with the fruit fry, the fruit fly brains. Uh, actually, I was like, I just want to do something big. So I, I went on to, you know, typical big impact journal, Nature Science Journal. And I was like, okay, what's the first article I see here? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to report on that. So I found this one, which was about the fruit fly, fruit fly brains. Yes, specifically something called the connectome which I will be discussing a bit about before I go into the study. Because I had no idea that a connectome was actually a thing. And apparently this is specifically, uh, this study was looking at the brain connectome. And a connectome, for short, uh, refers to uh, a synaptic wiring diagram. And it basically is a, it's a neuro term, uh, neuro biology neuroscience term so just keep that in mind again it's a neuroscience topic but yes uh this connectome it describes a uh, comprehensive set of neuronal connections that are present within an organism's uh, central nervous system so their brain spinal cord etc and uh specifically it's this study was looking at the connectome of the brain so looking at the many neurons and neuronal connections that occur within uh, the brain of uh, fruit flies. Yes. So now that you guys know what the connectome is, uh, why do we want to choose to study uh, the brain like this? The reason that I found, at least, because I had no idea before, is actually you want to study brains like this, or at least current research is looking at brains like this, because the idea of this connectome is that it views the brain as a multi-layered object that has a bunch of different connections that go all over the place, that connect to this thing and that thing and everything. And it's a way to show how interconnected and related everything is. So it's, it's a very different model than, you know, how uh, neuroscience has typically been conducted. Uh, and what I can remember from uh, my second year lectures, of course, is when you see typical neuroscience studies, and the ones I've seen at least, when they study neurons like in the brain or whatever, neurons are what our brain uses to control all of our daily functions and day-to-day uh, -day things. And you hear all about neurons making connections when you're like a toddler or whatever and your brain is growing. It's all that. But the big thing that the connectome brings is that you view the brain and these neuronal connections as being interconnected rather than viewing the brain as just a bunch of neurons that act like singularity, sing singularly in one like area instead of, oh, it's actually a neuron that's not just acting by itself. It acts and influences a bunch of other neurons. So it's basically viewing the brain like a giant multi-layer map instead of just like, a neuron here, a neuron here, a neuron here. Because older studies would just look at one neuron and they would trigger it to signal like an electrical signal, a chemical signal, whatever. And then we get a signal and a signal transduction and whatever. But so this idea of the connectome is really big because it views 
the brain and neurons as an interconnected kind of thing. So uh, before I go too much more into that, I want to give a bit of a background about the difference between a neuron and a synapse. For those of you who may not be too familiar with neuroscience stuff, brain stuff, nerve stuff, it's a whole thing. I'm not going to go into it because you could spend weeks. <laughs> you hear that always, too, from lecturers. They're like, my lecture this morning was like, it was calcium signaling. And she was like, so I only have an hour to tell you about calcium signaling, but I could spend a week talking about it. <laughs> but yes, I could spend a week talking about neurons. Maybe not me, because I'm not a neuroscience person, but I know other people could. But needless to say, there's a bunch of info out there. I'm just going into the basics so that you guys... Uh, have a little bit of background before I go a bit more into this connectome study because it's cool. <laughs> yes, so a neuron versus a synapse. What is the difference? So a neuron is the specific type of cell that basically does all of the uh, like signaling in your body to trigger your muscles, uh, trigger trigger movement and neurons make up your brain, as I've already mentioned. They're big. I mean, there's a lot of other factors that make up your brain, but neurons are the big thing. They're the ones that make the connections and do the signaling. And that's why it's so hard for us to map the brain because it's like unending. It's so complicated, and it's like un it's unlike anything we've really ever seen before. So it's pretty nuts. So a neuron is a specific type of uh, specialized cell. They look pretty whack. <laughs> so I guess a good analogy is you take like tree roots. Um, I guess you know how they're really branchy. I've You all have probably seen neurons, I, I would hope, <laughs> by now. They're really branchy, uh, very long. You've got the center of the cell, and uh, the neuron branches out into many different directions. And there's a whole bunch of uh, technical terms, like the long branches are the axons, and uh, these will then uh, connect with other neurons. And the connection between two neurons that allows them to talk to each other is called the synapse. So you have the neuron, which is the cell, which does the signaling to talk to other neurons. But the only way neurons can talk to each other is through a synapse. And this is a specific point of communication that occurs between two neurons or a neuron and a target cell. So... Uh, you can have neuron-to-neuron -neuron communication like you do in the brain, or you can have a neuron uh, that goes down your spinal cord and along your body to trigger, say, a muscle cell. I actually remember learning about this last year and second year because we had a big unit on neurons and signaling. Uh, we were looking at uh, signaling from the brain through neurons into muscle cells and how the neurons would activate the release of calcium, and this would trigger muscles to contract uh, and there's a whole signaling pathway for this. It's called excitation uh, coupling. Uh, the excitation coupling reaction. I, I think that's right. Yes. <laughs> Where you trigger muscle cells um, to release calcium and then they do things. But yes, the big player here is the neuron, which has a synapse between the neuron and its target cell, which in this case is a muscle. It can also be a gland. And this is also a really big event too if you are looking at uh, the heart as well. As I just learned in my lecture today, uh, signaling, chemical signaling in the heart is really big and that's driven by uh, your your own neuronal, neuronal impulses and it's a big thing. But yes. And uh, so synapses are the specific points of communication between neurons 
neurons to neurons or target cell to neuron. And uh, at the synapse, what occurs for the signaling is something called an action potential, which uh, will be fired in one neuron, the one that's sending the signal. This is called the presynaptic, uh, presynaptic neuron or the sending neuron. And this causes the transmission of the signal to another neuron through this action potential. And the cell or neuron that receives the signal is called the postsynaptic cell. And uh, signal transmission through neurons and into other cells is a really, really important thing. And it's, it's quite regulated, and it all depends on the uh, overall uh, charge inside and outside of the cell. Like, it's a whole thing with the membrane potential and membrane depolarization. And I, I, I won't go into it too much here, but needless to say, charge in a neuron for electrical signaling, for signal transmission through synapses is a really big thing. And actually, uh, this signal transmission that occurs with the neurons, uh, and overall as it goes through the body, it can be either chemical or electrically uh, based. And chemical, chemical signaling uh, within neurons when you're transmitting a signal, uh, it involves the release of uh, neurotransmitters, which are a specific type of chemical messenger. And if you've ever watched a documentary on, uh, you know, like nature's most deadliest, and you know how they always show a snake, and the snake has a neurotoxin, <laughs> most of the time that neurotoxin from the snake is a, neuro is a type of uh, neurotransmitter, so it's a chemical messenger, and it goes and uh, interferes with the neuronal signaling. So when, when you... Um, watch the nature documentaries and they talk about a snake and their poison is a neurotoxin. That's how it works. And there's also another thing too, um, because sometimes I read into these random morbid things. Um, if you've ever heard of the box jellyfish, the most dead, deadly jellyfish uh, in the world and it can kill people in like two minutes or something crazy, that I believe also has a neurotoxin. And I think it works the same way, though I'd have to check. But if you guys are curious and you want a real-life example of why we need to care about a neurotransmitter, just take a look at snakes and jellyfish and all of the nature documentaries associated with random neuro, uh, neurotoxins because those are a big thing. And uh, this chemical release with the neurotransmitters is also really big because that's a, that's a big target for drug development with different, uh, different neuro-based diseases. So, like, signaling and neurons and everything, if that's screwed up, if it's messed up, that's a big deal, and that's a big target of a lot of um, drugs that are being developed nowadays. So, yes. <laughs> uh, so, you have chemical transmission for messages with these neurotransmitters, and this is a method uh, that doesn't involve a physical connection between the neuron and the cell that they're signaling. And they're really, really heavily regulated. So to get the release of the neurotransmitters, they're transported to the end of the neuron in vesicles. And then they're released out into the extracellular space. And then they're received by the uh, receiving postsynaptic cell. So the presynaptic cell releases these uh, neurotransmitters. And then they're received. And, uh, th and then that signaling occurs. And as I said, it's really highly regulated. And it's... It occurs a ton 
in in us in humans it's a big thing it's a big thing if that gets messed up then you're you're screwed (laughs) if your brain chemical signaling with neurotransmitters gets messed up you're in a really big pickle so yeah (laughs) just keep that in mind now i mentioned there are two different kinds of signal transmission that occur in neurons you have chemical as i've already discussed and there is also electrical signaling And this involves direct physical connection between the pre- and postsynaptic neurons and the postsynaptic cells. So you have to have a physical connection. Whereas the chemical one, the cells can be close together, but they don't need to be physically touching each other. Electrical signaling, uh, the cells need to be physically touching each other. And this physical connection is commonly um, established through gap junctions, which are a specific type of uh, cellular connection that occurs where the cells are physically joined together. And uh, what the difference with electrical versus chemical signaling is, is while chemical signaling is a lot more regulated, electrical signaling is a bit less regulated, I think, because the cells are physically connected to each other. But this type of signaling is actually quite a bit faster compared to the signaling that's used chemically for chemical synapses. And the reason that you would want this kind of signaling, actually, because it's faster, is a common application and use for it is in something called an escape circuit. So uh, some examples that I pulled from my lectures last year and um, through a little bit of research, actually, is uh, these escape circuits are common in uh, animals like fish and actually crayfish. So uh, they trigger really quickly and... uh, in terms of the escape part, uh, you're, say, you're a crayfish, which has this electrical signaling. And say you're sitting around on your little uh, lake. You live in a lake. Uh, let's say you live in, a, in your, little, like, your little lake, and you're just vibing on the seafloor, and you're eating, I don't know, plants, animals? I don't know what crayfish eat. But you're just vibing. You're having a fun time. You're this crayfish. So you're not the top of the food chain. That's the big thing. You're not at the top of the food chain here. So say you're vibing along and then this, uh, let's say, ooh, a snapping turtle comes and he crawls along and he, and he sneaks up on you, right? And he like, he like sticks his head out and he bites at you and he's like, he bites like two, two inches away from your face and you're like, oh shoot, I got to get away from this dude. He's going to kill me. Ah. So your, your body and your brain is literally like, okay, we got to yeet out of here. We're going to escape. So you know what your brain does? Triggers electrical signaling to create an escape circuit. And that will trigger, um, the tails of the crayfish. So if you're still this crayfish here, it'll trigger your crayfish tail and your tail will go, Swimmy, 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 swim. And you will be like, I'm going to swim away from you, little snapping turtle dude. In your face, you're dead. Ha, ha, ha. Yes. So that is a funny little example of electrical signaling and how it differs from chemical signaling because it's much more immediate, less regulated, and involves physical connection between the post, the pre- and postsynaptic uh, neurons and the uh, postsynaptic cells. So yes, <laughs> funny little example there. So... uh if you ever see a crayfish or whatever, you can think of me and my fun story about running away from snapping turtles with electrical <laughs> neuronal connections. So fun. So fun, right? I know. Great. Okay. Now that you guys got a bit of a background on these neurons, I mentioned before at the start of this uh, 
this hour show tonight uh, that this study was looking specifically at the brains of fruit flies. Yes. So it's looking at the brain connectomes of fruit flies. So what are fruit flies and what does their life cycle look like? Because I need to cover their life cycle so you guys know what exactly these researchers were looking at because they were looking at a specific type of fruit fly larva. And fruit flies to the science community are known uh, by their most common species uh, as Drosophila melanogaster. Now, I believe there's a bunch of other species there, but Drosophila melanogaster is like a really big model organism in like developmental biology and everything like it's it's big it's massive uh yes and there are a lot of researchers here that are working on uh flies actually so shout out to uh, marcus bischoff who has given quite a few lectures in bl3303 <laughs> hey <laughs> yes so drosophila fruit flies they're the little tiny buggers that if you leave fruit out on your counter they will fly around and like buzz in your ear and they're so gosh dang annoying but for some reason they're really big in science you know it's this crazy thing you know like one thing you think is annoying in one part of life and then you find it in another part and it's like wait that's actually helpful and this is that instance where drosophila have actually been really helpful even though i don't think i want to study them personally i'm not really that into flies but this study was and the study was big so yes drosophila big important model organism um They've also been used a lot to discover the role of different genes and development. So, yeah, they're a big thing there. Uh, if you're curious to see how they're used in research, just look up uh, the Hox genes in Drosophila, and you'll see a bunch of diagrams of uh, Drosophila larvae with these fluorescent bands tracking gene expression. Or you can track uh, other kinds of gene expression and it's a whole thing. There's a whole thing. There's even a whole thing I think I remember from it was like, like, I think it was first year lectures, actually, like, you know, that you know that they give where you get like a week where it's like, one lecturer talks about their topic of research. And it was this one week that we had and literally the example with Drosophila was not only the gene expression part, but legit, it was they were like, okay, so you can do gene expression, but here is this Drosophila fly, legit this fly. He had, like, two heads. And, like, they they genetically, like, adjusted what was going on. And then it gave him two heads. There was one with four wings. There was one with, like, eight legs. And it was, like, a whole thing. And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, yeah, that's a fun thing to see when you're in first year. Join developmental biology. You can make mutant flies with three heads and 20,000 wings and have a fun time. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, gee. I mean, hey, that would be a funny uh, uh, fourth year project, wouldn't it? <laughs> make mutant flies. Go. I mean, it's probably a lot more complicated than that, but needless to say, Drosophila are big. There's a ton of research that is uh, that has used them to make a bunch of big findings because they're easy to, they're an easy model organism to cultivate and everything. So it's a whole thing. But yes, I mentioned that I was going to go a bit into their life cycle because this specific uh, brain connectome study that was looking at Drosophila looked at a specific uh, larva like type of larva. And you'll you'll get more what I mean when I talk about their life cycle, but Drosophila have multiple larval stages and it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing that I'll be covering very briefly here, but yes, keep that in mind. Okay. So, how do Drosophila 
develop? What does their life cycle look like? And how is that relevant to this study I'll be discussing? So Drosophila are known as uh, hollow metabolous insects. And this means that they undergo complete metamorphosis during their life cycle. And they have four main life cycle stages. So you have an egg, you have the larva, you have the pupa, and you have the adult. So think of like similarly to butterflies, how they start as an egg and then they grow into their little caterpillar, doopy doopy doop, and then they become a pupa in their cocoon and then they hatch out as a completely different looking organism. Same thing here with the fruit fly with Drosophila. Except they don't look like a butterfly, they look like a fly, so kind of a bit more ugly, but ah, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> and actually, I didn't know this, but the rate of development, so how quickly the fly develops and how long its life cycle is, actually depends on temperature. And the warmer it is, the quicker that the fly will develop. So say you're a fly and you're vibing along and it's 20C, which is like 70, I don't know, close enough. Uh, and you're vibing along, it's 20C, your life cycle will be complete in about two weeks. But if you're a fly and you're at 25C, your life cycle lasts 10 days. So if you're a fly and you live somewhere really, really hot, you're living for a shorter amount of time. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you're a fly, say, like, you're in the desert and it's really hot there, you know how hot the deserts get, probably like 30 celsius something really hot 100 over 100 fahrenheit it's like insanity probably 120 if you're living in the desert now i don't know if, if uh, fruit flies can live in the desert they probably can though but if you are you'll have a really short life cycle probably like a week <laughs> so basically if you're a desert fly uh you'll be dead the fastest out of any of your compatriots <laughs> so sucks to suck but you know that's life that is life and yes so yes, keep that in mind. Uh, if it's super, super warm and you're a fly, you'll live shorter because of temperatures. And uh, so I mentioned that flies, that these Drosophila-specific uh, like organisms, flies, whatever, they undergo many different larval stages. So what are these different larval stages? There are three. And initially, once the fly hatches out of the egg, it's this a really small larva. It's like a white, uh, kind of off-white, and it's uh, segmented, and it has these two uh, mouth hooks in the front. They're actually kind of black. I would know because I had a lab a few weeks back where we were looking at fly larvae, and then they they breathe through uh, this these things called uh, spiracles, and. So there, as I said, there's three different uh, types of Drosophila larvae. You, ha you can have first, second, or third instar larvae. I know, it's so fancy. Instar. Woo! Yes, fancy scientific name for this. But why are they called this? Why are they called first, second, and third? Like, what? what's the point of this? What? Because it's weird. It's just totally, it's totally weird. But yes, uh, the reason that these, these Drosophila larvae are referred to this with this specific naming system is because actually uh, as the larva grows, they will continue to grow bigger, but their skin doesn't like expand. It doesn't stretch. So they need to shed their skin periodically in order to reach their proper adult size. So the naming system, this uh, first, second and third instar larva naming system actually came about because of the fact that these Drosophila larvae need to shed their skin. So in a way, they're kind of like snakes, except they're flies. 
They're fly larvae. Huh. I had no idea. God. Crazy things biology has sometimes. I'm like, wow, what the heck? And uh, so there's these three different levels of the the larvae. And uh, this is because while the Drosophila larvae grows, it has to molt its skin, I think, twice. So between each of these different molt periods, the larva is called an instar. So if you're a first instar uh, larva, that means you've hatched and you've had your full your first molting event. Then if you're if you're a second instar, then you molted twice, and if you're a third, you molted three times. So it's a whole thing. And uh, after the second molt, then the larva becomes a third instar larva, and it's ready to become a pupa, and then it will develop into a fly. And it's a whole process that I'm not going to go into because it's super complex, and it's something we're still trying to understand. Yes. So, hope you guys enjoyed that little background about what the uh, connectome is, what neurons versus synapses are, and how Drosophila larvae specifically develop. Now, I'm going to talk for the rest of this uh, hour show episode about this specific study that was looking at the brain connectome of these Drosophila. So this study, the reason why... Number one, yeah, it was in Nature and it looked cool. But the other reason why I picked it, actually, it was it was published, like, legit four days ago. On Thursday. Last Thursday. March 9th. I know. Last Thursday, I was doing a biochemistry lab. And I'm still working on that lab report. You know, you guys don't want to know. That lab is killing me. But it's fine. It's fine. So shout out to everyone doing 3324. Uh, but yeah. Fun times. Fun times. We'll get there. We'll get there. But yes. This study was published just on Thursday, very, very recently, and it involved some big names uh, besides uh, Cambridge, of course. That's my focus this week. Though, hey, I may focus again on Cambridge if they have another cool thing published, but we'll see. But yes, this study had some big names. Um, We had researchers from uh, Cambridge, had researchers from uh, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which is in uh, Virginia in uh, the States. Uh, Also people from uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, Columbia, UCLA, and Stanford. Basically, big school, big school, big school, expensive, expensive, expensive. But, you know, they had all this name power, you know? It's great. And it was in nature, so whatever. I mean, not to be too subjective or anything, but it is pretty cool, isn't it? I know, I know, I know. I feel so fancy talking about a big, fancy nature study. It's like, wow, wow. Anyways, why was this study so big? Why was it in nature in the first place? As I've said, it was looking at the brain connectome of these fruit flies. But why is this such a big thing? Because this study was the first time that an insect brain connectome had ever been mapped by researchers ever. So this had never, this has never happened before. It's like a new thing. The first time they've developed this kind of map, it's this whole thing. I'm like, wow, it's a whole map. Oh, my God. Yes. No, it's big. It's crazy. It's insane. I know. I know. It's nuts. And it's just nuts. Now, they didn't map the brain of an adult Drosophila. I have to caveat that. That's why I talked about the different larvae. They specifically were only able to map the brain of a six-hour-old instar uh, larva. So they didn't map the adult's brain, they mapped the larva's brain. So I just want to make sure you guys know. This is a big study because it's never been done. Yes, it was only done on the larva. And yes, have they done it on the adult? No. Do we want to do it on the adult? Yes. 
but they haven't done it yet. But it's still big because no other insect has had this done to it ever. It's nuts. It's nuts. So, you must be wondering, okay, Julia, you've gone into all of this. How many neurons are in a larval Drosophila brain? How many? How many? Because I haven't, I haven't said. I haven't said. Yes. Well, this study reported that they were able to map all of the neurons in the larva's brain, the six-hour-old larva, and there were 3,016 neurons with over 500,000 synapse connections. 500,000. Oh, my God. I don't want to even know how long that took to analyze. And you want to know how big the Drosophila larva's brain was? How big? How big do you guys think it was? Well, no one's here except me. So my original thought before I read this article, actually, was I was like, you know, it's got to be the size of a pinhead. No, it's the size of a poppy seed, which I think actually is bigger than a pin. But still, this tiny little larva... With this 3,000 neuronal connections, you think it wouldn't be that hard to map, but no. And that's small brain. That's not a human brain. That's not a dolphin brain. That's not an elephant brain. That's not a, a whale's brain. That's not an organism that has a brain larger than a poppy seed's brain. Like, God. <sighs> Needless to say, they have a tiny brain. But we got this research done. And it's pretty cool. And it's pretty cool. And... Again, another reason why this study was so big, besides it being the first brain connectome in an insect ever mapped, ever, is it's a big milestone for us, or for neuroscientists, not for me, but for neuroscientists, I guess for everyone, mostly for neuroscientists, is that the main significance of this study is that it's a really big milestone in understanding and helping us understand how the brain processes the flow of sensory information and how the brain works. And it's also really big because it provides us a much greater uh, detailed reference brain that we can use to look at to help us start to make more connections between different uh, neurological disorders, such as Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinson's, and any other kinds of uh, degenerative diseases that occur in the brain, so like dementia and everything, because those are really big. Those are really big. And they scare me, and I don't want to think about them because I don't want dementia or Alzheimer's at all. They sound horrible. But yes, this study's big. It's a reference brain. First thing ever done like this in an insect, it's nuts. So how did this study help us to improve our current brain mapping studies on what's been done before? So before this study was published, as of Thursday, uh, the current brain uh, mapping connectomes that we had on hand that had ever been done were from uh, C. elegans, which is a nematode worm, which is another big model organism species, and uh, as long as, as well as uh, this other organism, which is actually a larva from a sea squirt, which is pretty neat. So the only other brain connectomes that we had before this study was published was from a worm and a sea squirt. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're getting a little bit more closer to animals that are like humans now. You know, you got insects and stuff. So good. Good job. And this is also really big because as I've already talked about, Drosophila fruit flies, they're, they're, they've been a really big uh, model organism for like decades in science research and in gene stuff and everything. So it's really great that we have this starter phase of a Drosophila larva's brain connectome. Because this 
this organism is is big in a lot of other uh, biological research. And what's also good, too, is that fruit flies actually have uh, exhibited what they call sophisticated behaviors. And this includes learning, navigating landscapes, processing smells, and also doing uh, the weighing of risks and uh, benefits of different things. So we're getting a little bit more into like decision-making and stuff. And that's big because our brains are involved in a freak ton of decision-making. So it's big and it's nuts. So these researchers, they mapped this connectome, but how did they do it? Like, what was the lab stuff? And that's what I like about my new show structure is I can actually talk about this lab stuff. So what they did is these researchers, you want to know how long it took them? It took them a year and a half to get all the images from this brain of this singular six-hour-old fruit fly larva. Like, this tiny poppy seed-sized brain, it took them a year and a half to get all of this data. Like, oh my god. Can you imagine being the person that was, or one of the people that was, like, you know, like, one of the lead authors on this thing? Like, oh, you know, you want to know what I did for the past year and a half? I was taking images of a fly brain. Wow. God. Whew. The commitment science and we scientists have. Like, gosh. It's insane. And they spent a year and a half on this. Why? Because they were doing nanometer resolution imaging with an electron microscope. Yeah. So you guys know electron microscopes. They shoot electrons at stuff in a vacuum. They're really expensive. You have to coat stuff in a bunch of different things. But you get really good quality imaging. But they're so small, which is good. But that also is annoying because you have to measure a lot of things. But yeah, needless to say... It took them a year and a half to do this electron uh, microscopy imaging at nanometer resolution, which is tiny, which is great because we get all of this data. And how they did this is they physically took the brain of this larva. So, you know, a fly brain, legit. And you go and you slice it and you slice it and you slice it into thousands of tiny, tiny thin sections. And then you subject these thin sections to the electron microscope and then you get data from it. So so it, it's crazy because this whole study relies on studying the brains of these larvae. So if, say, you were one of these researchers or you were one of these lab assistants that were involved in this project, your supervisor is basically like, okay, so the whole basis of our study hinges on the fact that we properly analyze these tiny brains of these flies. So if you screw any of this up, we basically have to chuck the brain out and get a new one and do the thin slices all over again. I don't even want to know how rigorous they were with all this. It just sounds insane. <laughs> and and if this took a year and a half, like, it's just a year and a half of you mapping brain slices, like, over and over. And to think, it took a year and a half to map a poppy seed-sized brain of a fly larva. How long would it take to do this same level of analysis for the human brain? I don't even want to know. 10 years? 20 years? 30 years? Maybe that's too much, but it took a year and a half to map a poppy seed-sized area, and the human brain is like 100 times bigger than that. So, gosh. If we did this with the human brain with current tech, it would probably take ages. I mean, I hope we get there at some point, because getting this kind of map with the human brain would be great to track how everything is interconnected. And I would love to get to the point where we can eventually do dream mapping. That would be great, because my dreams are crazy. But Yes, needless to say, 
this study took a lot of work, a lot of lab work. And besides doing the electron microscopy imaging, they also used a uh, computer program to specifically uh, this one, I think was called like, it was called CatMade. <laughs> cat made <laughs> and it stands for a collaborative annotation tool for massive amounts of imaging data <laughs> funny right i know uh wonder uh shout out to anyone who's actually heard of cat made i've never heard of it but if any of you are working with that and would like to chat i'll be here i'd love to have a guest come and talk to me about something cool anything even even computer programs even though those aren't my field i don't mind i'm flexible so after they did all this analysis on this these tiny fly larva brains, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> with the electron microscopy and the computer imaging, what did they find from all this work? So I mentioned already that these researchers they were able to identify three thousand and sixteen different neurons, um, and over five hundred thousand synapses, and they were able to group these connections into four different groups. So they had to do a lot of uh, organization of data to actually make sense of all of this because they had a bunch of data. And you'll see that if, if any of you are curious and you want to check out the research paper, there's like figure after figure after figure after figure. And they're all really cool, but they're so confusing. So needless to say, there's a lot of data there. But if you guys are curious, take a look. But yes, I mentioned uh, before that they grouped all of these connections and all of these neurons into a bunch of different categories. So they divided the neurons into three different categories, an input neuron, output neuron, and an interneuron. And uh, the output neurons were, uh, where is it? The output neurons specifically were uh, like these specific types of cells. And then you had the interneurons, which were another type of cells that I'm not quite sure exactly what they were, but that's what they classed them into. Um, and there were uh, there were also other classifications for the neurons uh, based on their uh, connections, because neuron connections are very complicated and everything. Yes, yes, they very much are. Uh, so needless to say, me just going into the very basics of that, you had to categorize the neurons, then you had to categorize the synapse connections, and it's a lot of categorizing and a lot of organizing, and I'm sure they made great use out of their computer program. <laughs> I don't want to know how long the data analysis took. Like, you think the actual data collection took a while, a year and a half? How long did the data analysis take? Because that's the hard part. That's the hard part, for sure. For sure. So, yes. Needless to say, this study was really cool and there's a lot of information that I cannot cover in this time. A, I don't have the background enough to understand it. B, the paper was just really long. Really, really long. But there were a bunch of cool news publications about it and everything. Like, uh, yeah, I only found like like one or two, but because this was such a big study and maybe because it was on nature and everything, everyone was like, ooh, we're just going to do a news study about this and this and this and it was it was a whole big thing. So yeah. Needless to say, this study was big. And it's great. It's great. That's great. We've got this this research done here uh on this fruit fly larva, this Drosophila larvae. But how much more work do we need to do to map the synapses in the human brain? Cuz 
as I've already talked about, the human brain is massive. You want to know how massive? Well, the fruit fly larva brain that was measured with this Kinecanum study, as has 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 as I've said, uh, three thousand sixteen neurons. The human brain, way bigger than that. You want to know how many neurons it has? Eighty billion. 80 billion and that means that means trillions of synapses trillions of connections between these neurons and other parts of the body wow if it took a year and a half to map 3,000 neurons and 500,000 synapses the human brain has 80 billion and trillions of synapses 80 billion neurons trillions of synapses that would take ages to map god Wow. But I guess that's the whole basis of neuroscience, isn't it? Basically, figuring out our brain and how our brain works and everything. If you're a neuroscientist, if you're a research neuroscientist, if you're a neurosurgeon, on the other hand, you cut into brains. I'm sure you probably still need to know quite a bit about the different neurons and the connections, yeah. But you've got a different role there. (laughs) And I said I was going to talk about another TV show on this episode tonight, and I am just for a little brief uh, tidbit moment here. Uh, I don't really watch it much anymore, but I think a few years back, I, I, you know, I started hearing about Grey's Anatomy. And, you know, you guys know Grey's Anatomy. It's still going on and on. They're on, like, season... 18 or 19 or whatever and it it show's been around for ages i'm like oh my god but yeah but yeah if you guys want to go see a a tv a tv version of a neuroscientist i don't know how exactly how scientifically accurate uh, it may be but one of the main characters um before uh something bad happens to him (laughs) which i will not go into when or where that occurs but something bad happens to him uh is uh this 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 character that 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 I'm sure most of you guys know if you've watched Grey's Anatomy. Um, so you have the main character of the show, uh, who's uh, Meredith Grey, who starts off as an intern, but then she becomes a doctor and whatever. But she meets this guy literally in episode one, who's this massive like neuroscience neuro neurosurgeon guy, uh, Derek Shepard. Yes, <laughs> and they all call him they. You know what they call him? They call him they call him McDreamy. <laughs> God, I mean, yeah, Grey's Anatomy, not the most scientifically accurate show in the world, but you know, they got some, they got some like nice looking actors and actresses, you know, like just a bit of a flex there. You guys need a little bit of a break from all the work and all the lab report writings, which I am currently in the middle of and it is pain. (laughs) Maybe check out Grey's Anatomy just to, just to see a TV version of a nurse, of a neurosurgeon and, um, try to think about my show today with the brain connectome and how basically <laughs> Derek Shepard cuts into people's brains on a TV show, which may or may not be the most accurate thing, but all the connectomes I've just talked about, he's basically going around and cutting all of them, cutting all of your neurons and wrecking all their connections. And then they have to go and make new ones. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, Grey's Anatomy, amusing show, mostly just about a bunch of drama. Um, I mostly just watched it for the relational drama and because I was half bored. And it's it's one of those fun shows to watch on the plane if you're bored. You could download like a whole season and then if you're on a really long flight, uh, just watch it. And it is amusing. Is it the most educational thing in the world? No. Is it amusing because of the drama? Yes. The drama is so amusing because they continually seem to kill off a bunch of characters. 
every season, and I have no idea why, but for some reason it's amusing because there are 19 seasons of it. But yes, <laughs> Grey's Anatomy, uh, TV version of neuroscientists, uh, neurosurgeons, TV version of a bunch of other kinds of professions in a hospital setting. Uh, do I wish they made a TV show about what it is like to be a academic researcher? Yes, that would be amusing. But honestly, I feel like the content half the time would just be like, I was in the lab and I researched, say it was a TV show about this this paper. I researched the connectome. Yatta, yatta, ya. And it was literally just like, you, you were in the lab for seven hours. Eh, goodbye. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be a cool uh, topic for a TV show. Uh, but no, if you guys are interested, as I said, check out Grey's Anatomy. Uh, if not, uh, maybe you'll see some of the filming of The Crown going around in town here fun time i think they're blocking off north street on wednesday yeah one of the one of the people in my in one of my courses actually she was talking about how she's going to be an extra on on the crowd and i was like oh that's so cool you know i'd love to be on tv though honestly probably not because then my privacy and anonymity would go away so i don't think i actually want that but you know the idea the idea anyways if you guys are interested in in learning a bit more about this idea of the connectome, besides this study that was published on Drosophila, and because there's no study on how it looks in humans yet, if you're interested, there is some other research going on with other groups that are looking at mapping other types of brain connectomes. So I found this little plug here as a side note, mentioning uh, this place in Seattle, which is in uh, Washington on the west coast of the uh, U.S., if you guys don't know where Seattle is. Seattle Space Needle. It's actually where Grey's Anatomy takes place. Ooh! Yes, yes, I know. It's a Grey's Anatomy plug here that I didn't even mean to make, but I'm making it anyways. Specifically, this was a, a side note that mentioned uh, research going on at the so-called Allen Institute in Seattle. I don't... I, I've never been to that place. I have been to Seattle once when I was like 14, but haven't actually been to this place. But apparently at this Allen Institute, they are working on mapping the connectome of a mouse brain. Yes, mouse. Yes. And a mouse, mice are actually another uh, common type of model organism that is used as well for a lot of studies. Uh, They're also very big in like cancer studies and everything, though I won't go into that here. But yes, if you guys are curious about looking at another type of connectome study, you can take a look at this research going on at the Allen Institute, where this group specifically was looking at mapping the mouse connectome in the brain. Now, you might be wondering, okay, uh, you've talked this whole episode this evening, Julia, about the connectome in the fruit fly brain and how it only has like 3,016 neurons and 500,000 synapses. So how does this compare to a mouse brain? Because you've talked about, I have talked about uh, the human brain and how we know it has its like billions and billions of neurons and trillions and trillions of synapses. How does the mouse brain compare to this? Apparently in one cubic millimeter of the mouse brain cortex. Now, do I know the size of the mouse of a mouse's brain offhand? No. Does anyone no, that would be a very fun fact. <laughs> if you want to go on trivia, how many cubic centimeters is a mouse brain? Woo! You would totally win some some fun points on a trivia quiz. But yes, 
uh, in one millimeter, in one cubic millimeter of mouse brain cortex, uh, there are, drumroll, a billion synapses and a hundred thousand neurons. Woo! I know, right? I know, right? And that's in a millimeter cube. That's not even the whole size of the mouse brain. Like, again, I don't know the size of the mouse brain. That'd be a cool trivia fact, but I don't know. But, like, geez, geez. Again, compare this to the fruit fly brain, where it's just, we're just at a starting point here with this. Just the larva, only 3,000 neurons, 500,000 synapses, compared to the mouse brain and the human brain. We got a ways to go. But there's cool research going on with all this stuff, and it's great. It's great. It's just we got a lot of stuff here to do. And there's a lot of future studies that are looking into this area of the connectome because, as I've mentioned, it's a whole big thing showing the interconnectedness of neurons and stuff and connections in the brain. It's this whole thing. But yes. Uh, And if you guys were not already convinced about the brain and the connectome and why this is all important... uh, besides watching Grey's Anatomy, is the big importance, too, is we have to remember that the brain is a really important organ. It basically is what makes us us. It And the neuron activity that goes on in the brain controls every thought, every memory, every idea that you will ever and have ever had. So yes, brain is this big massive important organ and this study into the fly the fruit fly drosophila brains connectome is just the starting point of this kind of research into figuring out brain connections and everything and what goes on there and it's a really really big undertaking to look into this type of study uh but it needs to be done it needs to be done And actually, if anyone is interested, I don't know if they're still hiring now, but the specific lab at Cambridge that was doing this research, uh, I checked out their lab website really briefly, and they had an actual, like, blog post advertising about how they would be take. they wanted to hire research assistants uh, for their study. This was, I think back in like December or whatever. So it probably already occurred and they probably already have filled these positions, but this lab is looking into continuing their research and mapping the connectome of the adult Drosophila brain. So if anyone is interested uh, in possibly getting involved with this lab, I will, I will post their website link up on my uh, little show Facebook page. Uh, if you guys are curious, you can check it out, but Hey, who knows? You could go to Cambridge and work on fly brains, you know, and say hi to everyone else that seems to live in Cambridge, you know, because a lot of people are there. But yeah, but yeah, so hopefully you guys have enjoyed this episode of The Living World, and you didn't get too bored by me talking about fly brains for an hour, but also rambling about The Crown and um, Grey's Anatomy. We'll see what TV shows I talk about next week, uh, and see how related they are to my topics. But yes, uh, So I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode of The Living World, and I will see you all next Monday at 5 for uh, the next episode of my show. So yes, hope you guys have a good evening, and if you see any of the filming of The Crown, uh, just just give me a shout-out, because that'd be pretty cool, you know, fame-adjacent, TV-adjacent, pretty cool stuff. Anyways, okay. 
Hope you guys have a great evening and thanks for listening.